You're listening to SpectraCast, the show where I get behind the scenes on diversity and inclusion. I'll be talking to a number of people who have taken steps towards greater inclusion of others, and also with those who have benefited from being included in the workplace. Whilst my bias might be towards recruiting and retaining neurodiverse people, I'll also explore practical approaches to be more inclusive overall. Hi, I'm your host Chris Turner, and I've made it my mission to help employers to embrace and reap the rewards of being more inclusive of neurodiversity. In doing so, I hope to do my little part in ensuring more neurodiverse people get the same opportunities and choices as everyone else when it comes to work and employment. So, if you're curious and want to learn from those who are doing it, and you favour action over inaction, then stick around. Well, welcome back to the SpectraCast podcast, guys, and uh, for new listeners, welcome. Uh, Good to have you on. Today's episode, I'll be talking to Tim Goldstein. Uh, Tim is an autistic advocate from the US and uh, has done some fantastic work around helping people uh, work through both how to uh, manage their communication styles um, and their communication approaches. So uh, let's uh, let's just jump straight into the conversation with Tim and uh, catch up with you later. Thanks. So Tim, um, why don't we uh, why don't we maybe start with a little bit about <laughs> who's Tim Goldstein? Tell well, me a little bit about yourself. I. Uh... I'll start with, you know, as far as uh, the autism portion itself, uh, I have diagnosed and have Asperger's. Uh, I was diagnosed about four years ago. So I'm very late in my life. I'm 58 now, so at 54 is when I actually found out that I had this condition. Now, Tim certainly knew he was different through most of his life. Uh, I've had multiple careers and multiple industries and I tend to excel in every one and I tend to get fired, Uh, which seems like an odd combination of how do you excel and get fired? Um, I don't know, but I do it pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're playing to your strengths. So, you know, what I can bring to the table for a lot of people in in asking questions, whether it's working with an individual or working with a company, Mm -hmm. is... I do have roughly 30 years of business background that has nothing to do with technology. So I understand that perspective of the business person that they just need what they need. They're trying to run a, you know, as you say, they're trying to run a business. They're, they have uh, objectives. Oftentimes they have shareholders. They have, they have people that need to be pleased. That's right. Uh, but I've also been in technology for 20 years and, uh, you know, living in the uh, tech realm. Uh, first off, I, I found my, uh, my tribe, we'll say, um, I personally feel that probably 50% is just a rough guess, and there's a lot of people who would tell me higher, uh, are not necessarily on the spectrum diagnosable with autism spectrum disorder of some sort, mm-hmm. but a term that I like to use that I call an ASD lister and put quotes around the A. Mm-hmm. And think about a Hollywood A lister. Well, you know you need a Hollywood A-lister to make your movie be just spectacular and, you know, bring in the box office. But you also know they're probably going to be a little hard to work with. They're probably going to be a little temperamental. And we certainly know from seeing all the, you know, trash tabloids and everything in the checkout stands that their behavior is certainly not the model that we 
brought them in for? Uh, we brought them in purely for talent. So to me, the ASD lister is simply the tech version of a Hollywood A-lister. You bring them in because of the phenomenal skills they have, and then you work around those things that are kind of annoying but have nothing to do with what their skills are. Yes. Uh, so when I you know, got into the tech world, I definitely felt much more comfortable with uh, people understanding me and not being uh, offended by me and you know, the way I process and do things. Yeah. Uh, so by combining those two parts, uh, I've been very effective in the tech world and you know, at this point work in fairly high positions. Um, but as I said, I also, with having Asperger's, a lot of companies, uh, or most companies really, don't know how to deal with that or handle it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say I'm proud of it, but uh, I've already been fired from two six-figure U.S. jobs, uh, which I don't know what that translates into Australian dollars. I think it's still six figures no matter which way you count it. Um, right. Which, you know, I mean, that's not a wonderful thing, but fortunately, you know, I wrote the book on how to interview, so I, I interview really good. Uh, so I, I am able to get that replacement job. Yeah. But the worst part is the company is the one who's really suffering because while I'm able to bring that business sense, that business value to them, what they object to is I'm actually going to call it out and say the problem is this. And if that happens to be somebody's uh, baby or a particular person, um, that, you know, I'm told is not socially the correct way to do it. But I struggle with, okay, it might not be the correct way to do it, but you've been messing this thing up for three years and still haven't fixed it. I, you know, last company I was at, they had an evaluation done on the department. And it was done by a very qualified uh, you know, consulting group. Yeah. And they did a, a complete evaluation all the way through from technology to personnel to training to management and recommended all the things that needed to be done to bring that group up to what would be considered normal standards for, and it's a business intelligence group, so analytics reporting uh, data. Well, when I started, uh, I, I was given the charge to uh, help fix the group, and I read the report, and you know what? Three years later, it was exactly the same problems as it was three years ago. But I ended up getting fired because I uh, pointed to where the problem was, and that uh, person uh, decided it was better if I was gone than them. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, a little bit, uh, I guess it gives you a little feel for, uh, for Tim. Uh, you know, like many people who are on the spectrum, uh, A, I'm not really, really good on the social nuances, uh, whether it's in a company or in a normal social setting. Uh, and also, uh, I tend towards uh, being somewhat of a risk taker, uh, which, you know, doesn't get talked about a lot, but is a very, very common attribute amongst, you know, the fairly high-functioning people on the spectrum. Uh, you know, we, we do crazy things. We, uh, you know, whatever. We bicycle, we go rock climb, we jump off mountains, we do, you know, whatever. <laughs> but are all pretty normal things as well. I mean, lots of people do that sort of stuff too, don't they? Well, you know, it's, it's a matter of uh, degree, I think. I think that's <laughs> one of the issues in trying to explain the thought process and what goes on in the head of somebody on the spectrum is, if you just say that we do those things and everybody says like, yes, hey, oh, well, that's normal. I know lots of people that do that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the fact that we do it to what most people would call an obsessive level uh, that, you know, we, uh, 
you know, uh, my, my idea of uh, going out for a, uh, a fun little hike is to go solo climbing a 14,000 foot peak, which I guess that's about uh, 4,000 meters um, in the Colorado Rockies, which is close by because I live next to, the, to those peaks, uh, in the winter by myself because I like to go with people that understand me, so I usually go alone. <laughs> but most people would consider that to be extreme, very extreme. Uh, they don't necessarily consider it extreme to go mountaineering, but they would consider it extreme to go mountaineering by yourself like that. Yeah. But I yeah. think that's the difference is uh, uh, not necessarily the thing, but taking the thing to a level of, well, you know, taking on more risk than most people will. Uh, You're right. But I think you see it as well. And I think there's been a few, I saw a video on LinkedIn recently about a, um, a child or a young man, I should say, I guess. And his, um, I think it was historical knowledge. And I think it's the same thing. It's, it's having that interest and then really delving into that interest like with a lot of passion and either, as you say, like exercising the opportunities to you know, pursue it beyond what most people might normally consider or, or delving into knowledge and gaining knowledge beyond what most people, you know, it's, it's not about, I want to be good at trivial pursuit. <laughs> it's kind of going beyond that. Um, yeah. Yes, I, I would very much agree with that. And I think that it's both a problem in life. It's a problem in relationships when you're, you have a mixed, you know, neurotypical, neurodiverse type. Uh, so, you know, normal person and somebody on the spectrum uh, type marriage. Um, and it's a problem in the workplace. You know, when I attack a problem in the workplace, I attack it like I'm going to kill it. You mm -hmm. know, that's my goal. I'm going to go learn whatever I have to, stay up as late as I have to, do whatever I need to, to get this problem handled. And that's very intimidating to most people. Uh, you know, in the, in the marriage situation, um, you know, it, uh, you could say overshadows everything at times <laughs> yeah. because you're so interested in the subject that that's all you think and talk and, and speak about. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I get uh, uh, chided fairly regularly for talking about nothing but autism all the time. Mm -hmm. But hey, it happens to be my current passion right now. So guess what, you know, I think about most of the time. If it's not actually working on an IT project, it's doing something in the autism world. Uh, so I do talk about it a lot. Um, Works really well everywhere else, except with my wife who gets to hear the same thing too many times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. So you've talked about um, having had quite a lot of experience in the workforce. What have been some of the things that you've noted? And I guess maybe it's a little, whether it's easy for you or, or not otherwise to do that retrospectively, but thinking back in those years where you just knew you were you and you didn't have that extra lens on, um, the Asperger's diagnosis. But thinking about those prior years, what were some of the things that you felt were effective in terms of sort of work environments and the managerial approach, that sort of thing? You know, the, the best manager that I think I ever had was in the tech world. It was a tech job, and uh, he was the development manager. It was a team of about 15 people that I was, I was on. And, you know, as is not necessarily unusual for somebody on the spectrum, uh, I, you know, I would have meltdowns. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'd have meltdowns in the middle of work. Uh, 
And usually at that point, it would be the heck with this place, and except it was a little stronger terms than that. Yeah. Uh, I'm out of here, and uh, you know, I don't need to put up with this crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Greg was his name, and Greg was, uh, uh, you know, at the, at the time, probably 15, 20 years older than I was, and uh, very seasoned, you know, very, very seasoned engineer. He wrote some of the original compilers for some of the first microprocessors ever out. Mm-hmm. And Greg never let me get past his office before I, he'd uh, have me sitting down and, uh, and just kind of keep talking with me till I calmed down and, you know, we got down to what the problem was and worked through it. Yeah. So I say that the thing was, as Greg recognized, and it was mostly because of his background. He'd been around high-level tech people his entire life. Mm-hmm. And he recognized that, uh, you know, we tend to be a little temperamental at times. Uh, you know, we tend to uh, be so wrapped up and involved in what we do that if somebody uh, gets to be a block for us and we can't clear it, we get upset. You know, we get angry over that. Yeah. Uh, again, it's, it's the A-lister thing. That's just like being a Hollywood A-lister. Well, it's the tech A-lister. And he recognized that those traits that, you know, Tim would uh, get upset and frustrated and, you know, say nasty things at times, uh, did not affect the ability to deliver the product that uh, was being delivered. As a matter of fact, I was the one that uh, designed all the core designs of the product that was being delivered. So he recognized that it was worth his effort to manage and handle those, and what you would say, uh, non-typical, you know, business interactions. was worth dealing with that in order to get the skill level that I was able to bring to the project. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really the, the biggest thing is understanding. And he didn't understand it from the standpoint of autism because I didn't even know I was autistic and he didn't know anything about autism. Yeah. He just knew that tech people that were good tended to be that way. And if you wanted to keep them around, all you had to do was just give them enough time and enough space to kind of chill out a little bit and then they'd be back at it again. Yeah. So it was being empathetic and, and aware. Yeah, I think that that's probably a good way to put it is being empathetic and aware that what I was there for was to accomplish a job, but he was willing to be empathetic with the fact that, you know, I had some, at that point we called it personality traits that, uh, uh, made me a hot reactor, you know, I mean, I, essentially everybody looked at me as being a high level type A personality. Uh, well, I now found out why I was a type A personality. I was hardwired to be a type A personality uh, because, you know, basically that's what Asperger's gives you, that drive, that motivation, that, uh, as you say, digging into the subject way beyond what anybody else would ever dig in. Yeah, which, which is, uh, I mean, but it's, it's useful, very useful at times, surely. Well, if, if you want to bring in an expert in something, would you want somebody who has Asperger's that stayed up till, you know, two in the morning and read 50 books on the subject? Or do you want the consultant that uh, did the uh, quick guide to getting started the night before they walked in? Yeah. So they're very much, you're getting, you're very much getting something if you're willing to accommodate some of these challenges and the challenges truthfully fall really in the social situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's violating those social norms uh, that get you fired, even though you have a phenomenal job performance. Yeah. 
And you mentioned before that you find interviews not a, not necessarily challenging. No, I, I don't. Uh, I, I definitely would say that, that I am somewhat unique in this aspect. Most people who are on the spectrum aren't able to uh, express themselves and converse as if they were neurotypical. Mm-hmm. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, part of it I, I think back was when I was young, my mother used to take me all the time to uh, all the women's things she did, the ceramics, the flower arranging, and I did ceramics and I did flower arranging. And, uh, you know, you've got a bunch of uh, middle-aged, you know, mothers sitting there, and what do they do when the kid shows up? They dote on them and they're real nice to them. And, the, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if it's proven, but there definitely seems to be that a lot of people on the spectrum relate better to women than they relate to men. Mm-hmm. And so here I was in an environment of, uh, you know, people I could relate to because it was like being with mom and they all think I'm wonderful because I'm this cute kid that, you know, showed up. Yep. So maybe that's where I learned to start being conversant. Or maybe it was... Again, this was a special interest, and my special interests have always turned into jobs pretty much. They've turned into careers. Mm-hmm. I was into bicycles. I, I was so fanatic about wanting a 10-speed back in the 70s when it was the 10-speed boom yeah. that it was all I talked about that I wanted for my Christmas present. And my mother finally got so sick of it that she said, every time I hear the word bicycle, I'm taking a dollar off of what I'm going to give you. <laughs> <laughs> but... I, I did end up getting uh, you know, a job in that industry, in the bike industry. And I started out, of course, at the, at the bottom end. I didn't know much. Uh, you know, I was 16 years old at the time. Yep. And so I was the person that took a bike out of a box and took the stuff off and hung things on it and handed it to a real mechanic to actually make sure it was put together and safe. Mm-hmm. But sooner or later, you get asked out into the sales floor. It's a busy day. Somebody has to come out. And I had no problem talking about that because I was talking about my special interest to people that wanted to know about that interest. Yeah. You know, they don't walk into an independent shop that has no stores around it except that store unless they're coming in for you know, that item. Uh, so maybe that's where it is. I, I don't know. But that type of real-time, live, you know, face-to-face, uh, one-on-one or one-on-many communication mm-hmm. has never been a big challenge. And then... Recently, I mean, over the last three years or so, I uh, studied with some of the best uh, communication teachers in, in the world. Uh, you know, vocal coach, a gentleman named Roger Love, who uh, actually I'm, I'm working on a, a beta program in combination with him yeah. to help people that are on the spectrum to put motion and sound into their voice instead of coming off with a normal flat affect so that people are making up what they think because they're thinking, if I sounded like this, this is what I'd mean. So if you know the right sounds and tones to put in, even if you're putting them in artificially, it doesn't matter. Uh, So, you know, I've studied things like that. Uh, That has greatly increased my ability to connect and communicate. Uh, You know, I've also uh, studied with people teaching how to, how to move, how to body position, and how to use your body uh, to you know, bolster and reinforce what you're saying. Yeah. So you can get aligned with all three modes of communication, the, the words, the actual tonality, mm-hmm. and the body movement. And when you do that, uh, interviews are simple. 
because even neurotypicals don't know how to do all of that together. Uh, you know, there, there's very few. They're usually called actors. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, and, that's right. and that's really what I trained with. I went and trained with a bunch of Hollywood people that normally work with actors and, and top-level singers and learned how to interact. So uh, I basically took this lack of fear or inhibition to communicating, but I had a very horrible voice. It was high-pitched, and I was very monotone, and I went really, really fast, and I didn't use commas, and I didn't use periods, and I sounded like just about any technique that you'd ever deal with. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't talk like that anymore because I found and was was told quite strongly by my vocal teacher, uh, when you do that, you make people feel stupid. Is that what you want to do, make them feel stupid? <laughs> well, obviously that's not what most, I'm not trying to make most people feel stupid. I don't want to do that. Yeah. But I didn't know that the trick to make them not feel stupid is simply use commas and use periods. When you're speaking, stop. Just Let them down. process for a second, catch up with you, <clears throat> and move on to the next one. Yeah. Uh, so, for me, interviewing is quite, quite easy, and when it comes to the technical side, again, that's where having Asperger's uh, has been a phenomenal help. You know, I've, uh, I, I've been doing, uh, working in data for 20 years now, uh, and I have gotten quite good and know quite extensively what I do because I didn't learn it just to do a job. Mm. I learned it because it was a fascination to me. Yeah which is what made me good at doing the job. Yeah, and, and I think that is definitely one of the big differences is um, with people on the spectrum, and, and maybe more so those that are more, uh, that's probably not true actually, the, the Asperger types versus anybody else, but I think common with people on the spectrum at least, the um, delving into topics, because it is interesting, um, and not just because I need to know you know, so much in order to do our thing. Um, very, very much so. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think uh, there can be a downside to it at times, though. Mm -hmm. And the downside is if it's not something that you have an interest in, it's like poking your eyes with dull pencils. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, and in that point case, and again, uh, you know, when we're talking Asperger's, I don't know how much of the audience is familiar with, you know, the terminology. And of course, the terminology is changing. You know, in the U.S., we have the, the DSM, the Diagnostic Standard Manual, and we threw out Asperger's and we lumped it in. And I, I personally think that's bad because I think Asperger's, if we go back to how Hans Asperger described the, the children that he, you know, based the condition around, yeah. he called them his little professors. That was his terminology. Yes. So it, it, Asperger's has a very tight definition. It's very bright, very inquisitive uh, people. Yep. Whereas when you just say autism spectrum disorder, we're now going in, and I, I don't believe in calling it a, uh, a continuum. Most people think of spectrum as continuum. Yep. But if you look in the dictionary, spectrum is not continuum. Spectrum means there's a cluster of things you could have, and any particular person showing it can have any combination of those clusters. Yes. Uh, which you can't put that on a line because it doesn't fit on a line. It only fits, and I don't have a picture up here, but I, the way I describe it is, think of this cloud that's full of glitter and confetti, and 
every piece of that glitter and confetti represents a way in a human that thinks and processes a particular way. And if we run, you know, we have all this fancy AI and everything now, we run an algorithm on it and we group those things. And we're going to get this huge group that we call neurotypical, which just means normal people. It's not that they're special, it's just that, you know, if we threw all humans in a bag, took all that, you know, confetti and threw it in a bag and grabbed some, you're probably going to get the normal piece. But everything outside of that we call neurodiverse. And in neurodiverse, of course, you have autism, you have ADHD, you have OCD, you have, uh, you know, dyslexia, dyscalculia, uh, sensory processing disorder, uh, yeah. and you just have things that we don't even have names for, we just call it weird personalities. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, you know, I, the, I really hate the ASD thing because it starts getting people thinking about, oh, well, high functioning, uh, that means that they're going to be good at doing everything. Yeah, it's not a linear scale. And I think that high, the, the high versus low functioning labels are very, very misleading. And I think because the high functioning, I think, can um, really distract from the challenges that people who <laughs> are high functioning, <laughs> who might otherwise fall there, have. Like, it's just because you're, you're highly capable and, and, um, and adaptable and the like doesn't mean that there's challenges. Uh, and some of those challenges can be higher, can be significant. And equally, I think when you talk about the the you know, the low functioning people, and um, and you might, maybe we're talking about someone who has a, an intellectual disability and is nonverbal at the same time, and it can kind of really discount the actual abilities and talents that they have if they're supported and they can demonstrate those. But we sort of yeah, you sort of focus on the, the positives on one end and discount the negatives or the, the, the challenges <laughs> and you focus on the, 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 the dysfunction at the other end and ignore the positives. So it's, it's very much that that's very well put. I, uh, I you know, I, I like the way you put the contrast of how we kind of flip it around, even yeah. though we're dealing with people with the same symptoms that they're displaying or traits is probably a better way to put traits, it that they're displaying. Yeah. Yeah. The only difference is, is maybe the magnitude of that trait. Uh, I actually Relative have a, to others. Yeah. Uh, you know, I actually yeah. have a paper that I, I wrote, and I, I uh, call it the, uh, uh, the curse of uh, the high functioning. Uh, and what I really wanted to call it, so I subtitled it, because you've got to be a geek to understand this one, is mm -hmm. uh, the uncanny valley of autism. So... You know, if you're not a geek and into robotics, then you don't understand what Uncanny Valley means. But the uh, concept of Uncanny Valley came from a Japanese robotics researcher. And in Japan, they're far more into trying to make robots look humanistic and, yes. you know, real life than we are in this country and in most countries. Uh, so what this researcher found was if you take something uh, as innocuous as a, a Roomba, you know, one of the little automatic vacuum cleaners, which it's a robot. Who cares? I mean, it's this round thing, goes around your floor, cleans stuff up. Big deal. You don't have any attachment to it. It doesn't offend you at all. Uh, well, if you trip over it, it might offend you. But, uh, but as you start making the, the thing more human, so uh, now you give it a humanoid shape. Now, well, there's going to be more attachment and, and draw to it. You put nice anime eyes on it and those kind of things, and it gets more attachment to it. And it keeps growing as it gets closer and closer and closer to being human till it gets to the point that it's almost human, but it's obvious there's something wrong. And at that point, people's affinity to it drop off like a cliff mm -hmm. because it's freaky, it's wrong, it's just 
you know, uh, it would be like the walking dead. I've never seen a walking dead person, but I imagine if I ran into it, it would feel pretty freaky because it almost looks like a person, but there's something wrong. Yeah. But as soon as you make them perfect, then they're right back to we relate as a human. Mm -hmm. So being somebody who is on the high functioning side and particularly being able to uh, verbalize and uh, express, you know, concepts and ideas as, as I am, I'm assumed to be that normal human. Yeah. So when any autistic trait pops out, and as you said, just because I'm high functioning doesn't mean that I don't suffer with, you know, all the normals. I, I have the uh, most common comorbidities. I have on medication for anxiety. I'm on medication for depression, mm -hmm. uh, which are standard comorbidities uh, with, you know, autism. Uh, you know, I have black and white thinking. I can be rigid at times. Yeah. So, you know, when any of those kind of things pop out, I drop into that uncanny valley of, oh my God, this person is not like us and is not part of the group. And maybe then it's, I just read a, uh, an article in Scientific American about the uh, evolution of morality. Mm -hmm. And what it was really saying was at some point as humans, we evolved this innate uh, thing where we put the we in front of me. When we got to the point that we became cooperative, uh, we had to put the we first. Mm -hmm. Well, we tend in the autism spectrum not to put the we first, and when one of those things pops out, I think it's almost an innate thing in the human to say, this is not part of our group, and if it's not part of our group, it's the safest thing to do is get it away. Which is kind of... <laughs> And that feels like a natural, normal, primitive type response. Yes, that's what I, 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 it's almost hard-coded right? in. Yeah, well, that's it, it's it, isn't it? And you, you see it with animals all the time. If it doesn't smell like part of the family group, it's an intruder, and it takes a different, gets a different reaction. Right. And I think that's exactly what you're saying, is that even, even as evolved as we are, there's a base instinct somewhere that, is that anxiety or, or, or an adverse reaction to something that doesn't fit? Right. And it's not that they actually process it that way. They mm. Generally, the way it's explained is uh, uh, you just don't fit in. You know, it's been nice working with you, but you don't fit in. <laughs> What's that mean? <laughs> well, I actually read an article over the last couple of days, and it, was, and it talked about the how social norms are defined by the society in which you live. So a lot of the things, I think a lot of the challenges that um, autistic people have in Western culture is as, is as a direct result of the social norms that have evolved across, fairly consistently across a lot of Western culture. Whereas if you go to other cultures, a lot of those social norms are different. And things like making eye contact, in some cultures. Right, that, that's disrespectful in, in some cultures. Exactly right. Yeah. So the fact that a, a child may not make eye contact with you would be perfect. And that's <laughs> ideal because that is what is expected. Right. Whereas, you know, for, for, for you and I, where we live, it's, it, that's not the case at all. Like we expect people to make eye contact. We think that they're engaged with us. They're listening to us. Whereas we know for a lot of autistic people to make eye contact and to hold a conversation is engaging two senses at the same time, which can become extremely challenging. And I'm either doing one or the other. You know, I wouldn't even say it's necessarily 
that it's challenging doing too. I don't, maybe that's the problem for some people. And, yeah. and I normally do not have any problem with eye contact. I've, norm, I've never had a problem with eye contact. But for about a day and a half or two days, I suddenly had this, when I would look at somebody in the eyes, it was painful. I mean, physically painful to look at somebody in the eyes for a day and a half or two. Yeah. So, of course, being a good Aspie, I got on uh, Google and started, you know, re researching this one. And there was nothing documented in that direction, but there's a lot of documentation in the other direction of people who have the challenge of not being able to make eye contact, mm. of having that go away. And what it was normally associated with was uh, uh, being sick and usually a virus type sickness, mm -hmm. viral sickness, or particular medications. And they would lose that inability while they were either you know fighting the virus or having the medication yeah. what you think about it uh, both of those can affect brain function so suddenly what if it is it's pain that they're feeling because that's what i felt mm. and I'm, I'm just convinced if it can work if you hit these certain drugs or certain viruses you can lose that ability well why can't you if you don't have that problem why can't you suddenly have that problem if you run into the right combinations of meds or viruses or whatever. Uh, and like I say, it wasn't that I can't do both at the same time. I'm very capable of doing both at the same time. Yeah. But I wasn't capable of handling the physical pain that it took to look at somebody. It's interesting you say that because it, it maybe going back to that, that um, spectrum paradigm, you know, that it's it, different characteristics are different for, other, for, for different people and, and um, it may, they may manifest, I guess the challenges may manifest in different ways. I was talking to a lady just yesterday and, and she was talking about the whole, because we talked about this eye contact thing in different cultures. And, um, and for her, the challenge is with the eye contact and maintaining a conversation is, is that when she's making direct eye contact, she's then getting anxious about, is it too long? Am I too intense? When should I stop? And she's not listening anymore. She's having these continuous thoughts about the appropriateness of her eye contact and she's no longer listening. So, and that's, so that's, it's a, it was a cognitive processing thing that I think it interrupts so, her listening. So it's kind of like, yeah, yeah right. for, for her, for, the radio yeah, for her, it's definitely a different mechanism that's causing the same thing. Yeah. Um, but I just bring in the pain part because A, that's what I experienced and B, I've never heard anybody ever talk about that. All I've ever heard them talk about is being, no, they can't handle the, the you know, processing multiple things, mm. uh, which, you know, is, I, I think is one of those, uh, uh, you know, unfortunate fallacies about autism that have been repeated over and over and over again, uh, much like the one that we like to do repetitious things. I hate doing repetitious crap, but <laughs> if it's something that I'm into, You're I don't care. Lot. Maybe it has a repetitious nature to it, but I'm not doing it because I like repetition. I mean, no, take gaming. And I, I'm, I'm personally not a gamer, but when you look at gaming, what is gaming? It's very repetitious. Yeah. But is the person doing it because of the repetition or are they doing it because of the involvement in the game and it simply involves doing something repetitious to enjoy that game? That's a that's an interesting perspective. I it's I, I suspect you, you you're probably onto something as well. But uh, yeah, I, and it's how much how how much is it that the activity activity is either enjoyable, relaxing, calming, uh, or all the above, 
or all uh, of the above. And it's, yes, so if I enjoy doing something, I'm probably going to do it more often than something that I don't enjoy doing. Very maybe, much. And maybe we're just talking about those doing things to relative extremes. So it's not an absolute extreme, but it's relative to others. Yeah, and if, or, or it could yeah. be absolute extreme. It's anywhere from relative to others to being on the uh, extreme side to the far extreme yeah, side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I, that's why I say there, there's just all of these, uh, uh, what I think are misconceptions that have gotten out there instead of this understanding that we're, we're a population of people that are just as different as every other kind of population of people is. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have some commonalities, though. We have some traits that, you know, are, are common, but we're still all individuals. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I know people aren't going to be able to see this, but you've got a, a board beside you, behind you? Yes. Yeah, chart here. So, uh, I, I, you know, I, I can explain it in, uh, in terms that uh, listeners can even understand. Yeah, let's, let's try and do that because I'm curious and, too. Well, we'll start with uh, uh, most people who are on the spectrum, as we discussed, tend to get very deeply, deeply involved into whatever it is they're doing. To, to the point of most people would call it obsession and uh, we just call it, uh, boy, this is fun and I'm going to learn everything I can about it. Yes. <laughs> but the problem is, is when they go to, we go to communicate with other people we tend to want to communicate all of this stuff that we know. Mm -hmm. And most people at a party really don't want to know about, uh, you know, the 12,000 different things you know about Star Wars, you know, franchise. Uh, so what th this concept is here is that information to me should be split into three different depths of information. Mm -hmm. So, in order to converse with somebody, you have to understand at what depth of information should you converse. And the one that I have uh, sitting up here, I've kind of dual labeled it. Uh, but if you start at the smallest amount of information, would be kind of a social type situation at a party. Or if we're in the IT world, we'd say a user story. And that one almost gives it away. What is it? It's a little story. I want to be able to do this. And when I push the button, have something happen. Mm -hmm. That's it. There's no technology involved. It's a story. Or in the, the social part, you know, if you're at the party and somebody says, what do you do for, you know, what do you do? I mean, that's the first thing usually people ask you is, you know, about your career or your living. I mean, you start somewhere. And they really don't want to know that you uh, uh, program in, you know, a fourth level language on this type of database and this. If you just say to them, I'm a computer programmer and I happen to specialize in data. They can relate to it, and they got the level of information they, they needed. Yeah. Now, as you expand that out, we go to you know, a bigger level of information, circle around it, uh, which is, I call it either the decision or the requirements level, depending if we're talking in IT or in the yeah. social world. Yeah. So in the social world, uh, you know, maybe we, we're talking in the social world, we're talking about a little story of, uh, you know, where do you like to vacation? Oh, I like to go to so-and-so. And, uh, well, geez, I like to go there too. Well, you know, if we ever, uh, I'm going, uh, would you be interested in maybe going with me? Well, now if we start the discussion about, yeah, let's, let's go together. We're going to get into much more detail than we would if we were just talking about, oh, this is my favorite place to go. We're now going to start talking about, well, I can't afford that hotel, but I'd really, uh, you know, like to be by the ocean. Uh, 
no, no, I can't stay on the ocean. It just stinks. I can't handle that. I like to be in the mountain. Whatever. You're going to have more yeah. detail in the conversation. Yes. And yes. conversely, in the uh, IT you know, realm, I think of it as building requirements. Uh, at the requirement level, you're picking the user story apart and starting to identify not technology so much as the technologists that you're going to need. I'm going to need a front-end programmer, a UI UX person. I'm going to need a database person. I'm going to need a, you know, a cloud engineer. Uh, but again, it's a little more technical. It's a little more detailed. Yeah. Then in the biggest level of information is the, we're going to do it. Okay, we're, we're done talking about we want to go on this trip together. And we finally argued out you know, what type of hotel. Now we're actually picking individual hotels. We're picking which tours we're going to take. And we're picking you know, maybe a cruise. Mm -hmm. We're talking a huge amount of detail at that point. Yeah. Or in the code, you know, in the IT realm, I call that the coding realm. That's where you're actually putting the little tiny bits all together to build the thing. So you're living at the detail level. Problem is, if you're living in the detail level, uh, and again, coming from the technology world, that's, uh, that's where I live. Yeah. If I'm talking to a senior executive, they're living in the user story level. If I try and start telling them technology, it took me 20 years to get to the level I'm at. I don't have 20 years to explain it to them. I got two minutes. I better explain it in their kind of way. Mm. And that's what these little bars on the side are showing. And it's, it's uh, again, the users can't see it, but the way it's arranged is the three circles are stacked with uh, getting, you know, smallest, bigger, biggest, with all of them uh, touching on the bottom and, you know, extending out beyond on the tops. Yep. And on the sides, there's triangle arrows pointing up and pointing down. The down-pointing one says tech details, and it's tiny at the bottom, and it's red and green at the top. And what that's telling you is if you're in the user story social realm, there better not be any tech details or you know, heavy-duty details there. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the line, the triangle is pointing upwards. It's colored green on the broad base, and it's labeled story. So it's actually telling you if you're in this bottom realm, you better be telling stories and not tech details. Yeah. Conversely, if we take it all the way to the top and we're in that, you know, we're going to do it code area, it better be all tech details and not a whole bunch of funny stories going on at that point. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this is a concept that I developed. I call it three degrees of interest. And first off, just by explaining this to not just the tech people, but the whole group, they now have a way to talk to each other to say, Hey, you're, you're too deep. You're, you're off in the code area. Please come, come on back to the requirements area with me. Because you've now got you know, visualization. There's a concept around it that never yeah. has existed. And even more, it's telling you how you should be communicating that information depending where you are in the detail. So that's what that one is all about. I like it. I think it's really good. I actually, and I was talking with someone very recently and uh, the challenge that she was having was um, how much detail to relay to her manager on work that she was doing. And, you know, and, and again, I think this, this um, framework that you've, you've got there, it's, it's applicable to everyone as well. It's, it's understanding, especially for people who are buried in the detail. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't have to be, uh, you know, neurodiverse and ASD lister to be buried in the details. I've worked with a lot of phenomenal programmers that were as normal, as neurotypical as could be. But nonetheless, they lived in the details like I did. We were programmers. We code all day. That's it. So you don't know 
and you don't have a way to express it. Now, this works great when both parties understand it or one party is willing to sit down and explain it to the other, and now you have a framework that you can point to and say, no, no, you're here, come back here with me. Mm -hmm. uh, I have another approach to take, though, when you can't do that. And I use this in my interview. I put it in my Geek's Guide to Interviews book. Mm -hmm. And what the method is, is never talk more than two minutes before you stop and say, did that answer your question or would you like to know more? So even if you were coding them to death, they can handle two minutes of being coded to death. And when you say, stop and say, did that answer your question? They're going, hallelujah. <laughs> and it's, it's little things like that of how I do so well on interviews and, you know, not trying to brag or make it great. Uh, I actually out of three interviews have three job offers and turned down two already. Uh, you know, fourth one's coming up. Uh, they're flying me out to, you know, headquarters. So they're obviously quite serious at this point. And it's by using things like that, by simply knowing that don't go on forever and ever. Just give them enough that they can get a, hopefully get a picture and ask them, did you get the picture? And either they're saying hallelujah because they want you to stop because they got it and they want to go to the next question. Or they're going to say, no, that didn't quite get it. I really was looking for, and they're going to give you virtually everything you need to know to tell them what they want to hear. Yeah, they're going to narrow those guardrails for you. So uh, that, that's the method that I, uh, you know, recommend when you can't have this conversation about how, you know, about three levels of information uh, coming from a, a technology, uh, you know, somebody on the spectrum that wants to tell all the details. Mm -hmm. And I, I think wanting to tell all the details, are, it's misconstrued why we do that. In my mind, and, uh, you know, I guess that's a one of the things that I happen to be good about is relating to why I do these things and being able to explain it. Uh, I know that's what the academic community seems to uh, enjoy about me is uh, uh, I, I, in a you know, engaging manner can tell them what the heck goes on in the uh, crazy mind of somebody on spectrum. <laughs> and um, I don't know, I lost myself where I was going with that one. Uh, <laughs> um, Oh, I, I, okay, I think I, uh, I, I think I know why. Why they want to tell everything. The reason that they want to tell everything is we live in the land of details. Whether we're programmers, whether we're not, as somebody on the spectrum, we build our world up from the details up to the big picture. Yeah. Most humans build their picture from the big picture, and they only go as deep as they need to to get the work done. <laughs> Yes, I've, 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 I've come across this, this bottom-up, top-down thinking. Right, right. And uh, we, we use bottom-up thinking in, in the uh, you know, autistic realm because we have to put all those details together. And that's part of why we have problems when changes are made and part of why we have problems when there's you know, sudden ch you know, change in direction, sudden change in orders, uh, you know, things happen because we have to put all those details back together in order to make sense to us. Yeah. So... To us, if you don't have every one of those details, then you don't have the information I'm trying to communicate. We don't realize that most humans don't want to hear all those details. They just want to hear this big picture story. And then if they want to know more, they'll ask. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why a lot of, uh, a lot of that is, is. It's because that's how we build our world. So we look at very granular, very tiny fine granular pieces is making a difference. 
And if I don't communicate all of them, how are you going to understand if every one to me makes a difference? Yes. You, you have to accept, I've learned, that when you're dealing with neurotypicals, that you're not going to tell them the whole story. And I'm not saying withhold information from them, but they don't care about all those details. You need to learn how to talk at their level. And for most people, you're going to engage them best if you can tell them a story. What's the thing? What's it going to do? How's it going to benefit from? You know, if you can phrase that as a little two-minute story, they're going to go, wow, that techie really knows how to communicate with people. Yeah, it's a great tip. And I think if you, you can always start at that smallest level of detail, like the smallest circle, the story level, and then as needs be, work down into the... Exactly. Or you know, the that, bigger pools of information. Um, that's exactly it, is always start with the smallest amount of information. And if the person wants to know more, they're going to say, well, could you go a little deeper on that? And if they don't want to know more, they're going to move on to another subject. And uh, you didn't, you know, hang them up and keep dragging them back to, you know, what they were ready to move away from already. Yeah. Um, but again, great tips for anybody as well. But I, I, I really like that. I'd like, uh, it's good. That's really good. Well, I, I will try to remember to uh, send you a, uh, you know, a PDF of the actual nice, you know, art version of it versus this uh, <laughs> hand-drawn chart version. But, uh, oh, you know, cool. I, I like when I'm doing live video versions. I like uh, more of the uh, hand-drawn chart stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. No, we'll, definitely, we'll definitely share that around then if you're cool with that. I like it. Yeah, oh, for sure. All right. So, Tim, um, might just uh, go with one last question for you. If you could give one piece of advice to an employer who's looking, curious, keen to employ neurodiverse people, but isn't quite sure how to start, what to do first, what, what would your advice to them be? I, there's, what comes to mind is there's really two different answers there. One answer okay, you is... You can give me two. Okay. Well, and they're really kind of for different stages. So it depends what stage the person's at. Yeah. Maybe they're really keen. They saw the uh, CBS morning uh, thing that ran on uh, the 2nd of September in uh, the U.S. where it featured Microsoft and SAP mm -hmm. and their Autism at Work program. So maybe they just saw that and they heard about the benefits and they're, they're motivated, yeah. but that's all they know. Well, if it's in that realm, they need education. They need to understand what are they taking on? What's, you know, what are all the details? Mm -hmm. uh, so that they can understand what is going to be required to effectively accomplish it. So that's one, you know, group. Now, once you finally get them to that point, or maybe you're starting with somebody that's already been to a few conferences, they've read some books, they're, they're deeper into it already. They're now convinced this is the right thing to do because it's going to bring them the skills and talents they want. Uh, and, you know, here, here we suffer in uh, IT uh, all over the world. We, we just try and steal them from each other's country of uh, IT people because there's not enough of them. Mm -hmm. So, good. We have a population that uh, tends to be very good at this if you can, you know, manage to put up with some of our uh, traits and quirks. Yeah. So, if you're coming at it from that standpoint and you're now ready to start going, how, what's the best way to get your company heading down that path. Mm -hmm. What seems to have proven to be the best way is bring in a speaker that, and there's, only, there's not a lot of them that can do it, but bring in a speaker that has to be on the spectrum first off and 
they have to be able to be very relatable to both sides because the company already has autistic people in there. It's not a question of will you hire the neurodiverse? You already have hired them and you just don't know it. Yeah, there's a lot so, of that. Right. So you have to be able to, uh, to relate to that person and to the neurotypical person at the same time. And essentially just give them a, uh, you know, a hour long speech. I, I did this for Alassian Corp, which, uh, you know, Sydney based, uh, uh, company. Uh, they have a headquarters also here in, uh, US and San Francisco, but they are an Australian company, really. Uh, and they had me come and do a, uh, an hour-long talk about neurodiversity mm -hmm. because they were trying to open the conversation up. And the best way to do it is have somebody that everybody can relate to and go, you know, he was a little strange in some of the things he talked about, but he seemed like an okay kind of guy. I can deal with that. And the neurodiverse people go, well... I could, he's like me. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I see myself there. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, I think, is the biggest trick, is finding that person that can relate to both sides. And they're rare. I mean, there's, there's, there's only a, you know, a small number of autistic speakers that you know, are, are fairly well-known. Mm -hmm. And most of them tend to not relate to one side or the other super well, so which is they relate really well to the uh, people on the spectrum in general. And they yeah. tend to uh, not relate. And when I say relate, I mean a human emotional connection relate. So in other words, those things that us people on the spectrum don't do. I mean, we don't do emotions. We don't process them. And I relate to you because of what you say and, you know, your, your intellect, your logic. That's what, you know, makes a relationship for me. Yeah. But that's not most humans. Most humans expect this more emotional experience. And what I've seen is even the biggest names can't put that emotional experience and communication into their speaking. Uh, and where I was, again, Wenton was trained by Hollywood. Who, who knows better how to get a, a message across? So I've learned how to be able to relate to both sides. And the way my vocal coach put it was, every word you say should be transmitting an emotion to the person listening. Now, of course, on the autistic side, we kind of go, ah, oh, yeah, so what? You know, what are the words? <laughs> but for everybody else, if you don't do that, they're never going to feel that these, the, I can connect with these people. Even though they're different, I can connect with them. Yeah, this is me. So that, that would be the advice is just depending, uh, it's either learn more so that you understand kind of a little what you're getting into and when you're ready to start, you got to get somebody who can connect to both sides and you just do a full company wide. It goes out to the whole company. You're not, you're not segregating. You're not doing it to one group. It's just a whole, Hey, diversity is a big subject these days. Mm -hmm. So, you know, most people have no problem at all listening to somebody talk about diversity. This just happens to be a particular type of diversity. That's it's one that most people are unfamiliar with. It's, this is true. This is true. So if Tim, people, if people did want to reach out or get in touch with you in any way, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, best way is just uh, go to my website, which is uh, timgoldstein.com. So T-I-M-G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N.com. Cool. Well, we'll put that in the show notes as well, so it's easy for people. Oh, wonderful. All right, cool. Well, thanks very much, Tim. Appreciate your time today. It's, uh, it's been a good chat. And, my, uh, uh, and 
I've learned something new too, which is always good. <laughs> I well, like enjoyed We enjoy chatting with you very much, uh, and thank you for uh, you know having me on. I've enjoyed it very much. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that discussion with Tim as much as I did at the time. And, and to be honest with you, uh, once we finished up there, we went talking for about another 45 minutes, just had a fantastic chat. Um, Tim's a fantastic guy. Um, now, I'm going to share some of those links uh, that Tim mentioned, and uh, hopefully we'll have some of the materials uh, that, that we discussed available for you all too. Um, now, I want to ask you all to do two things for me if you can. Jump onto iTunes or, or CastBox and, and leave a rating or a review because uh, it's going to really help other people find the show. Um, and also, I've got a, uh, an internship program coming up very shortly uh, in Melbourne, Victoria. And if you're interested in participating either as an employer or if you know someone on the spectrum or who's otherwise neurodiverse, uh, uni students at this stage who'd be interested um, Please get in touch with me, let me know. It'd um, be fantastic to have you on board. Anyway, thanks very much, guys, and uh, chat to you all soon. Cheers.